All right, sorry about that. So we're gonna we're gonna switch over now to looking at uh, Philippians chapter four. Philippians four, and we're we're I'm juicing as much as I can in the short time we've 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 allotted for the study of Philippians. I'm spending as much time as I can in the commands of four four through nine because they're so helpful. There's so much here to direct your steps, to guide your life, and you know we're we're kind of um, episodic here. I'm here sometimes and uh, able to share with you, and other times that we have. We have the fantastic um, bullpen of, of uh, pulpit supply that God has provided us, and Mike and John and Mark and Jack. Jack Jack's uh, better, getting better all the time, and he's about to jump back in the rotation. So um, uh, I just want to spend the time as we can on this this discussion in Paul's um, summary commands to these awesome Christians that are getting it right in Philippians four. Let me uh, let me read it with you. It says in Philippians four four after after discussing um, the repair of the 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 broken fellowship of these ladies Yodia and Suntuke, you have the summary litany of commands. I shouldn't call it a litany. That's usually uh, a little bit pejorative. Let me see if I can join the conversation. Well, that's not good. That's too big. I'll get back out of that. All right. <laughs> have to do some adjustments here first hour <clears throat> uh, there we go that's a little better so Paul says um, hey alright Paul says rejoice in the Lord always it may be a little bit small on your screen rejoice in the Lord always again I'll say rejoice this is the New American Standard 1995 which is kind of my go-to English Bible because uh, it's almost an interlinear. It, it, it tries to be, and I appreciate that um, translation philosophy for my purposes. But he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle, really gentleness, be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is anything, excuse me, if there's any excellence or if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Dwell, they say, they say ponder. Paul says logizomai, reason, consider, think about. Brainificate. Uh, in the uh, early 2000s, or yeah, 2001, brainificate. These things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And so that's, that's a, it's a paragraph of scripture. Never read one verse, you know, out of context to, um, never just read a verse and think you understand the, what it's doing until you've read it in its paragraph. But these little verses are almost like Proverbs. They're their own command. They're standalone. And he lists them all together. And so it's a full magazine of awesome truth uh, here for our needs to, to shoot at the problems of life, to shoot at the questions that we have. Y you know what you need to be doing in a great and large part, no matter what the circumstance is, because of Paul's commands in uh, Philippians four four through nine, and today I want to call what we're what we're talking about the will drill. The will drill, like the will of God, and that's I'm working on today. I'm working on two screens, and I ought to be. It, this really needs to be done on three, and so thanks for being patient with me with the with the engineering here. All right. Um, by the way, you're like, um, maybe you're wondering why, why, why Pastor Dave on the screen on, in the church instead of these awesome live humans that are there to teach that have been training and preparing, taking seminary classes and working with Pastor Dave and working and working. Why not put them in the pulpit here on uh, two days after Christmas, December 27th, while they're still working on their, uh, their papers for textual criticism for OT 103? And that's the answer is they're they're uh, uh they're taxed <laughs> and uh 
and and nobody told me that, but I think that, and uh, I'm grading their papers. So anyway, um, I had the opportunity to do this, and again, had intended and planned to be here with you today. So here we are. Now, the will drill is uh, it rhymes. I know that's kind of cheesy to rhyme things like that, but but it will help you remember. It, it's intended to help you remember. But there's a whole rationale. There's a whole thought process here that I think will really help you. Um, Get hold of your situation. Get hold of your circumstance the way the Apostle Paul has presented what God wants for you. And so in that section I just read, in the section we just read, there are seven commands and three promises. Did you notice that when we're reading through? Seven commands and three promises? Because uh, there are. What are the seven commands and what are the three promises? That's the question. Well, the first command is to rejoice, and he gives it twice. The command to rejoice. He gives it twice and says, rejoice in the Lord always. That's the first command. And you might notice that I put that in red. It's see it on the screen. It's red because he says, rejoice in the Lord, and it's a command. And this is the, you know, we, I love to talk about this. God thinks that you can rejoice on command because he issues it as an imperative. The Apostle Paul says, do this. Now, the, we've talked about this a lot, but the secret to, do, to doing this is the words that immediately follow rejoice in the Lord. The Lord never changes, so you have an unchanging basis for joy in the Lord Jesus Christ, in, his, in the promises from eternity past and the beginning of human history for God to save us by providing himself a sacrifice and the fulfillment of that promise in the cross work of Jesus Christ and his resurrection on the third day. And, and so you have so much to rejoice in. And we haven't even yet mentioned that after 40 days, after the resurrection, he ascended to the throne room of God and is seated at his right hand and is taking note and concerned and interceding for you. In fact, as Stephen, the first uh, we know of to die for the message of Jesus Christ, the first martyr, the first witness who, who witnessed uh, in, in, to the point of death in Acts chapter 7, he said he saw heaven open and Jesus standing at our Father's right hand. And uh, the Lord Jesus is uh, glorified and exalted and you are united to him. And so if you start thinking about who is Jesus to me, according to what the Bible says, what reason do I have to rejoice? You could start making you a list, start refresh, reviewing the list. There's a lot to rejoice in when we say rejoice in the Lord. And it's always... And he says, says it twice. The second command of the seven is the same, to rejoice. So there are seven commands technically because he says seven commands, but two of them are the same thing. Now this is not something that we fake. It's not something that we look at someone else and see how they squinch their eyes or how they hold their face and then we try to copy them. Although... Find somebody that's rejoicing and start seeing how you can do it too. But rather, this is, this is genuine and it's a choice. It's not something you fake, it's something you choose. And as a command, it becomes something I'm responsible for. It's now part of my conscience. Why am I not rejoicing? This is one reason we really love that song, um, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It's a self-talk uh, turn your eyes on Jesus. If you just read the poem, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's room for a look at the Savior uh, with life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes on Jesus. He's talking to himself. O soul, are you weary and troubled? There's another song that's like this about the Lord Jesus and our joy called What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And it's another self-chastising song. It's really helpful where it says, basically, why do you waste opportunity why do you waste your time and worry and sadness when you could uh think of your savior and rejoice in him i don't have that one memorized as well what a friend we have in jesus all our griefs to bear what a privilege to carry everything to him in prayer um and then i don't know the rest but the point is um this is the thought that paul has is you have plenty in your poverty in your wealth you have plenty in whatever your circumstances in peace in war in in good times and bad, for rich or poor, you know, whatever the situation, in a, in a marriage that you find fulfilling or in a marriage that you find uh, drudgery, 
you have reason to rejoice in the Lord and in nowhere else. Paul offers no other place, and Peter says he's our only hope. So rejoice in the Lord always. The third command in verse 5 is to let known, to let be known. This is important to emphasize because what our eye jumps to is gentle spirit or our gentleness. And we've said gentle here, I don't want to do the whole exegesis over again, but gentle means that you are uh, magnanimous. That's a big word, so we'll say gentle. But it doesn't just mean that you're not aggressive. We are not aggressive. That's true. But this word means something more. It means that we're not aggressive in our, in our prosecution of, um, of, uh, of legalism. <laughs> we are uh, forgiving, basically, and, and magnanimous and uh, open-handed and open-hearted. That's kind of the, it's graciousness. It, it's, it, it's hand-in-hand with the idea of grace. And so grace-oriented toward other people. Let it be known. Now, this is important. He doesn't say that you're to promote yourself or to tell it, run around telling everyone how you're such a giver. But it is that you're supposed to let it be known. Let the light shine. Okay? Which means that you, you, when someone addresses you, you speak to them. When someone wants to talk to you, look in their eyes. And when someone brings you something, you approach it as a fellow sinner saved by grace who has the answers by God's grace and would love to share them with them. In other words, in this gentleness, in this magnanimity, there's no competition. There's just the fruit of the Spirit. And so you want to let this be known. And this is, this is part of this kind of witness of the life stuff where we always say, wouldn't you like for someone to ask you, why are you different? That's kind of the idea. Let your gentleness be known. But notice it it doesn't say be gentle toward all men. It says let it be known. It means be gentle, but the idea is there's a witness involved that people can see it. The third, uh, oh, that promise, I'm sorry, that command comes with the first promise, the Lord is near. The Lord is near, and I think you've heard me probably say this is eschatological. This is the rapture or the coming of Christ for the church and the consequent judgment of the church at the judgment seat of Christ, which is not the great tribulation or the pouring out of God's wrath on the earth dwellers, and it's not the great white throne judgment where um, the dead are resurrected to judgment and then eternal condemnation. Uh, this This is something for the church. The Lord coming near for us is a cause for us to be serious about his business because he's going to render a judgment on our works. We receive back what we did. We're recompensed for the things we've done in the body, whether good or bad. And so this, this judgment that's coming, I think, is, is hinted at by the saying, the Lord is near. When people are like, oh, just come, Lord Jesus, like the Bible ends with that, even so, come, Lord Jesus, is the way John concludes things. Well, that means that he's going to come with his reckoning for what you've done with the gifts that he's given you. So uh, it's a promise, but it has a little bit of an accountability with it. The fourth command is do not worry about anything. And I've emphasized the fact that it's a command simply because it is. And this is a judgment uh, on our own tendency to worry or to be afraid of something less than God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I think fear is the same whether you're destroying your soul, fearing something less than God, or feeding it in the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Either way, it's this capacity God gave you that is part of your worship of him. And when you give it to something less than him, then you are destroying your soul. And worry and fear go hand in hand. And this, is, this goes along with Jesus' oft-repeated command not to be afraid. This is something that becomes, at this point, a choice and a function of our conscience, and we should not be a bad example for others. We're letting our gentle magnanimity, our open-handed graciousness, we're letting this be known to all men, and so we're not worrying also about anything because we're rejoicing in the Lord, and so our focus stays on the Lord. And every one of these commands, it requires you to first believe in God, to trust in his son, to believe what he said about Jesus, basically to go through the three questions and be stabilized. Who is God? Who am I? And what's God going to do for my sake, on my account? What's he going to do with me? And so don't worry about anything, but in all things, what's the fifth command? Make your request known to the Lord with thanksgiving. Now, I've skipped part of verse 6 because in, in this because it's not all a command. It's all pieces of the command. He says, don't worry about anything, but in all things, 
with prayer that's talking to God and supplication that's urgent specific requests. Let your requests be made known to God with thanksgiving and then you get the promise. So the command is to make known. Notice we've, we've got let your gentleness be made known. You're, you're making known your gentleness to all men and you're making known your requests to God. It's kind of a theme that Paul uh, sort of develops here. Let your gentleness be known. Make your request to God known. Isn't this interesting that often we might plead to God that, hey, I'm, I'm doing it right, God. And at times we will take to man our requests and say, I'm struggling. Help me, help me, help me. Where people can't help you with the things that God alone wants to help you with. He's got you in the situation you're in because he wants to be the solution. And so isn't that neat that um, you let your character that uh, God is developing you, let that shine to men and that's for their benefit see how man benefits by you being gentle compassionate gracious to others make known your request to god that's where you you tell god um we have uh in cef rhode island we have and and really throughout new england this really helpful man he's spoken in our church several times uh who is a mentor for all who know him and are are uh listening his name is john romano and we love him very much from up uh, up in maine and um and he taught us to tell God, uh, I'm sorry, to ask God for resources and tell his people about the needs. And this is the biblical pattern. Ask God, you know, at the end of every Christian event on the radio, every podcast, everything, there's always this, this time of year, it's the time for you to give to us to get us out of debt. You know, basically they have the please give us money thing. We never do this at Preston City Bible Church. At the end of our messages on Sunday, we will say we conclude our worship with the ministry of giving and explain what it is so that everyone understands and then say the grace boxes are on the back and we never ask for anything. And if someone will say, well, that's asking for money, it's really not. It's just saying this is part of Christian worship. You and God, you need to square this away between you and the Lord and how you worship him with the resources he's provided you. But notice that we make our requests to God and that's where the resources, that's where the provision, that's where the help is going to come from. So remember, when you want to worry and, and go and bounce around and, and go tell everybody about all the things you're worried about, remember that it's better to tell God what your concerns are. And the promise he gives you is that the, his peace, the peace of God. We're told in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And I think this is the same, it's the same word. I think this is what he's talking about. God develops this in us. He provides it to us. And this one, apparently you get from prayer. You come, the promise is if you tell God through prayer, urgent specific requests, make known your request to God. He says it three times. If you'll tell God, then he provides the peace. And so this one, you can't just, you know, uh, yield your way to peace on this one. You got to talk to him. And that's how it works when you tell somebody and they say, I've got you. I'll take care of this. And that's what God is always saying. I've got you. Romans 8, 28 needs to go in your heart with every prayer that you make because he is working all things together for good. So the peace of God is the promise. And we want that peace. And uh, well, I don't really understand this peace. Well, it surpasses all comprehension. And it guides your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And your pastor wants you to be guarded and protected. We want you to have that provision. Be thinking on the things above. That's the verse 8 that had all those things, whatever is, whatever is, whatever is. It's basically the things above. It's Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Keep thinking on things above where Christ is. Whatever is good, worthy of repute, you know, of excellence, think on these things. These are the things of God. And this will solve so many problems. Remember how Philippians chapter 4 began with the problem between the two ladies, Euodia and Suntuke. Christian women serving the Lord, but distracting the gospel ministry in the church family by having this public dispute where you know there was this offense and, and this failure to forgive there was some sort and, and that begets another failure like if you fail to forgive me then i'm offended at your ungraciousness and then i have a grudge against you for not being forgiving and <laughs> that's how we lock down into an arrogant uh, pattern of self-destructive bitterness even as advancing and growing believers. And how can that be? Well, they were, they were workers. They were fellow laborers in the gospel with Paul. And so what, what's the solution? The things above. 
You don't look at the offense. You don't look at the, the person's hangups. You look at the Lord Jesus, and then from that perspective, deal with that person. That's been the pattern throughout all of God's revelation, his dealings with Israel, even to today, as you start with God, and then you deal with people for God's sake. It's a major pattern in Scripture. And so you think on these things that are above. And this is how you manage whatever you need to manage with the flaws and brokenness of human beings. Keep thinking on the things above. And that is the cure for bitterness. Beloved, if there's any root of bitterness springing up, we can't have it. You've got to root it out. It'll destroy your soul and everyone around you. Bitterness is um, it's like anger that hasn't been dealt with. And it, and it festers. And, it's, and it's, it, it involves uh, offense and be, feeling of being wronged and victimhood. And the solution to it is to think it through. And where God said, don't do that, you need to confess it if you have done that. It's a sin. You've disobeyed him. You've said, you know, other than he wants you to say. You've thought different than he wanted you to think. And that's a repentance or a change of mind. And so I think sometimes we have a defi definition of sin that is a little bit too uh, human-based. Like, I think sin is whatever offends me. So the sins that bother me are the things I'm going to really, you know, try to avoid. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says sin is what God says it is. And so that's the, the way to deal with sin is not to start with us. We start with God, and then we realize, wow, my conscience is way calloused compared to God's righteousness. And I need to think about what he thinks is contrary to his desires for me. And that's where I have my change of mind. That's where I have my you know, confession of sin where I've gotten defiled by something he said not to do or something that he said to do that I didn't do and where I need to be cleaned up by him. And, you know, you don't have to have your conscience really tweaked for you to be out of fellowship with God. And just keep that in mind. That's why God gave us his word and he gave us his spirit to teach us his word so that our, our shortcomings in our inner person would be uh, dealt with constantly by this, this kind of filling ministry of the spirit, the saturation with the word. So the Bible first and my conscience, my feelings, these things second, uh, says First John. Be thinking on the things above. And the seventh command, as you know, was be practicing. Did you notice that? If you go back to Philippians uh, 4, nine, I can go back to Philippians 4, nine. The things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, he says this word. And maybe you, you your eye kind of practice. Um, well, uh, practice means that we, we can make mistakes. Well, that's not what this word practice means. It doesn't mean practice, you know, like, like batting practice or, um, or you, you know, you're practicing your knitting uh, on this, this, this throwaway thing so that you can do something good, you know, when you're doing the real thing. This word means do it. It's, it's the word proso in, um, in Greek, proso, P-R-A-S-S-O, is the Greek word. I'll pull it up for you real quick because I can because we're doing the, the screen thing. Uh-oh. That's this word, proso, P-R-A-S-S-O. And it's generally translated, glossed for English purposes, practice. But it means like a doctor. It means like we use practice when we're talking about somebody's job as a practice. And, and it means that what is done. Uh, in business, they'll talk about best practices. This means the things that we actually do. And believers who study the word and are intent on learning it and knowing it and knowing God through the word, we need to hear this because God gave us a book and he didn't say take up just and read. He said the things that you've gotten from me, you need to do, to proso, to do, to bring about or accomplish something through activity is how the Bauer, Donker, Art Gingrich lexicon starts off. To bring about or accomplish something through activity. That's a good gloss. That's a good... See, this is not the word to know it. <laughs> this word means to do it. Be practicing the things that you've learned from Paul. That's that's the 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 great uh, seventh or the seventh command in the Paul's list here. I'm not trying to say there's seven commandments. I'm saying in Philippians four four through nine there are these seven commands. Now, Paul doesn't say know these things. He says do these things. Jesus doesn't teach us. Doesn't say. Uh, make disciples by teaching them all that I told you. He says by teaching them to keep or to observe all that I have commanded you. And that's that's Matthew 20, 28, 20. Check me out on it. To make disciples by teaching them to keep, to observe all that I've commanded you. And so this is where we take what we're learning now and then, watch this, we do it. 
we do it. Let me re remind you of something that I've often said that I think is helpful here. When you when when I was a kid in little league, uh, they taught us um, both in throwing the ball and in batting. They taught us the concept of follow through. More important than batting, you you hit the ball if you do it right. You hit the ball right in the middle of your swing and you keep swinging. I've watched enough YouTube videos of people swinging golf clubs to know that I probably will never be able to do that where the ball goes straight. I have sliced a lot in my life, and that's pretty much what I what I uh, do. And um, <laughs> Matt, maybe at some point you can help me out with that. But um, but the, the, the whole point in swinging these the club or, or a golf club or a baseball bat, you have to follow through. And the follow through on eat and then work, the follow through would be the work part. We eat in, in the assembly of, of, of the believers for the study of the word. And like, like a bunch of kids around a farmer's table who are going to go out and work hard in the summertime... We're getting a big old farmer's breakfast because there's a lot of work to do. And those kids will eat up because they're growing kids, and they know, they know that there's a lot of hay to, to bale, and there's a lot of work in that hot sun, and they're going to need their energy and their strength to do it. So they eat a big breakfast, I guess is the tradition. I, I, I have a different method that I use lately, but they eat a big breakfast, and they go out and work all day. And, and all that protein helps those grown boys build that muscle and strong bones and all that resistance they're doing and, and you know not even thinking about it but all that cardio resistance work at the same time you know build strong people right that's the idea is you don't just eat and then go take a nap that makes you um, the opposite <laughs> of what you want you go eat and then you go to work and you work and that's the follow through so I think a lot of people don't eat in the Christian life. I think there's a lot of uh, spiritual starvation because the idea of just taking the word simply as it says and slowing down a little bit and looking at it and sinking down to the depth that it takes us. Well, I just can't. I can't. No, I, I, it's, it's work Americans aren't willing to do. It involves hermeneutics. It involves some, some, some theological categorization. And, and this is, it's just too hard. You know, that's too much. Can't we just sing a song or something? And uh, why won't the, won't the pastor just tell us a story? But, but to practice these things, you have to first receive them. That's what Paul is saying in, um, in Philippians uh, 4.9. He gives you four verbs of how you receive the word from Paul. Look what he says. He says in verse 9, The things you have learned and received and heard and seen. All right? The things you've heard, the things you have learned, received, heard, and seen. So you, I taught you this deposit of revelation and you were taught by me and you received it from me. So, by the way, none of us have been taught directly from Paul, right? We've, we've all been taught by people that were taught by Paul. It's kind of the flow. Like he never came and spoke to us directly. We have his word here and that's teaching us. But I mean, I mean physically in person. We've never heard or seen him. We've seen people that have taken his word and act like what he's saying. And so, but that's the model, is that you, you as a Christian example are supposed to be, by precept, by, by, by practice, walking like, you're, like a Christian, walking as a disciple of Jesus on mission, doing his work. And, and that's why my prayer life has totally changed the more I look at the Apostle Paul's prayers. He's all about the mission. All his prayers are mission prayers. And so, um, practice is the follow-through from all this reception, all this receiving of the things that Paul is saying. And so when you have the tendency to get out and do and get on the mission and work, 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 and not know the word and not spend time with it, well, that's following through without swing, without swinging. And that's going to be, that's no way to hit a baseball. That's not even a bunt. That's just a strike. That's a strikeout. So don't do it. In other words, let's eat and then let's go work. That's the, that's the pattern. All right, um, now, let's get, that's not good. I mean, that's not great, but it'll do. All right, so we've, we've kind of reviewed the seven commands and the three promises. Oh, I didn't get you the promise, the third promise. You know, I was forgetting something. It says, let me do some engineering. 
Number seven, the, the, seven, the third promise, the peace of God will be with you. So he promises peace again. So the first promise is you ask him for peace, ask him for your need, and he provides peace. Second promise is you do the things that you learn from Paul, like prayer as an example, and you get the peace that God wants you to have. And that is an awesome thing that you want that to, for God to give you, so we should uh, consistently uh, look for that. Now, um, nine key words in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 summarize what I mean by the will drill. Summarize what I'm trying to say with the will drill. This is God's will in you for you, for you in Christ Jesus. Nine key words. Today's all about the numbers. We had seven promises or seven commands, three promises. Now we have nine key words. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Well, what, well, Pastor, you told us earlier not to take a verse out of context. So you're just dropping First Thess five eighteen into it. And so, okay, let's let's talk about that. First Thess five eighteen is another summary command passage that goes hand in hand with Philippians four four through nine, and the command that Paul issues uh, is very similar. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. That's almost like let your gentleness be made known to all men. Rejoice always. That's almost like rejoice in the Lord always in Philippians 4.4. 4. Pray unceasingly, the shortest verse in the New Testament, two words, to and by letters. The shortest verse in the New Testament in Greek by letters is adialeptos prosyukasta. That's pray without ceasing or pray unceasingly, that means that your life is an ongoing prayer. In everything, give thanks. I know people say, well, that means pray like a hacking cough. I can't find that anywhere except that it's something people say. Uh, but, I mean, I can't find it in a lexicon. I can't, you know, this word means that you don't stop doing it. No stops. And so what it means, how you don't stop praying doesn't mean that you starve to death as you lay on your floor and pray. It means that your life is an ongoing conversation an ongoing talking to God. And that is uh, something to think about when you consider omnipresence. God is always present, that there is an ongoing relationship and that you're supposed to be dealing with all men for God's sake on his terms. All right, so pray without ceasing. And then he gives you the all of the Thanksgiving one. This is just like Ephesians 5, 19, giving thanks at all times for all things. But in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, 18, he says, in everything give thanks, and then he gives you an explanatory clause. And I believe that the explanatory clause for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus here, um, this phrase, is summing up everything that has come before. Give thanks for everything. Goes along with pray without ceasing. Goes along with rejoice always. Goes along with don't repay evil for evil. These things are what God wants for you. That's why you're commanded to do them. And that is the will drill. That's the rationale of the will of God. This is what God wants for you. And so my nine key words, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, is something to hang on to when you think about the commands of Scripture. Again, the original command that Paul uh, says right before this is pray without ceasing. I'm sorry, give thanks for all things. Give thanks for all things at all times. The universal gratitude that we have. We have constant rejoicing and now constant gratitude because of constant Christ. So this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus is the, the kind of the motto of what I'm calling the will drill. Like what do I want in my life? What's my will? What's my preference? Well, we just basically need to say I want God to have his way. The will drill. Here's the will of God rationale. If you're taking notes, uh, congratulations, I have some points. I don't know how many points. There's a lot of points. It's not. It's something between uh, 7 and 20. All right. First, God is a better, better wanter than we are. That's not great English, but I hope you know what I mean. We all have things that we want. We want to not have to do X. We don't want to lose Y. We don't want to, um, to suffer this pain. We want to feel comfortable. We want peace. We want our family together and we want harmony within that assembly. You know, the things we want, right? There's a reason you have the things in your life that you want. And I'm not talking about 
Psalm 23, want, I will want for, I will not want. I mean, this is what you desire. These are the desires that we have. It's like comparable to the word appetite. There are various appetites that God has created us with, like for food. And we're cultivating an appetite for his word to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Uh, You know, biblically, we have physical appetites, but we are also made with certain spiritual appetites that have to be cultivated, they have to be developed. And so we're like God in that we want things, but we're different from God in that we are so limited and we can't want like he wants. He's a better wanter than we are. Second, omniscience. Let me break that up, open that up for you and show you what I mean. Break it down and why he's a better wanter. Omniscience, the, the, the word omniscience, O-M-N-I-S-C-I-E-N-C-E. That's all science, all knowledge, all knowing. Omniscience is God's attribute of knowing all that can be known, including what actually will happen, has happened, and also potentiality, what could happen, what could happen in the future, what could have happened if something else had happened, which did not happen. This is, this is the big view of omniscience, that God doesn't just know what will happen because he's going to make it happen. Omniscience is not a function of future orientation and God's uh, omnipotence. His power can bring about. No, it's 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 not connected to his omnipotence. As it doesn't depend on him making things happen. He just knows all the end from the beginning. He knows all that can be known, and he knows you better than you. And he knows everything about you. And he knows the things that you think you know better than you can ever know them. And so this is the problem of postmodernism is partial knowledge. Well, we can't really know exhaustively, so we don't know anything. And we reject that view because we actually do know that one and one is two. In a base 10 system, one plus one is two. In a base, in a, in a, um, a um, digital system, uh, a, a base two system, uh, one and one is 10. And, uh, but but just go with me on base two. Two plus base ten. Two plus two is four. All right. Two plus two is four, and we know that. But we don't know it like God knows it. And so there's a difference between exhaustive, uh, infinite knowledge of something and our limited knowledge and our basic grasp of things. And so when God tells you something, you know it, but you don't know it like He does. And so that's an important difference that we have to draw in in between us and God. Omniscience is God's attribute of knowing all that can be known. So third, God's omniscience in terms of wanting something means he has the complete data set. And so what he wants includes all inputs. What God wants includes all inputs. Let me give you a a recent example. Uh, Mike mentioned Patton in a recent message um, a couple times ago in Deuteronomy. Uh, The the message before last, he talked about Patton's speech to the troops. And... um, which uh, is somewhat reflected in what George C. Scott did in 1970 in the movie, but not really. Uh, not, I mean, it's not the same thing as what Patton actually said to his army. But, um, you know, the, the story of George S. Patton Jr. in World War II turns around um, one of the narratives that's told about him that made him so successful in running through France, uh, kicking the Nazis out of France and headed straight into Germany. One of the things that that made him so successful, they said, was that he had a major setback. He had a big failure. Patton uh, shows up to um, out of North Africa, uh, ready to um, ready to charge up through Sicily and tell everybody all the plans and 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 direct things. And he's he's the great man. He's the great uh, man who loves battle and uh, and he's made for it and all that. So so Patton. Uh, uh, takes several cities and, and, and has all this success and he finds himself um, running his mouth and, and uh, making Eisenhower angry and he has these, these setbacks but he's so good and he's so uh, promising and the, the, everyone thinks he's the best uh, general we have, uh, at least tactically. And so, um, you know the big setback. He does a political boo-boo. He has uh, several political boo-boos. He makes speeches that um, that, that anger our allies and the, the press paints it in the wrong light and all that because they're sympathetic to the Soviets and they always have been, always will be. And uh, anyway, Patton ends up in an infirmary in, in a field hospital. And after seeing uh, kids that have been maimed, 
kids, and he's an old man, but he sees these kids that have been maimed in battle uh, for their country under his orders and all that goes into a leader dealing with that. And then he sees a kid in the same place that is that is uh, PTSD, we would say it today. He's, he's rattled. He's scared. He's, uh, he's, he just can't go back. He's just, he's just done. He's just decomposing inside. And Patton slaps him. He beats, he slaps him and, 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 you know, says, get out of here, you coward, get out of the infirmary, you know, and, um, does what a lot of people feel, uh, would be satisfying after seeing kids that have been burned and lost their limbs and lost, lost eyes and shot in the head and barely hanging on to life. You see somebody that's physically fine, but just rattled. And you want to say, okay, we're going to have to, you know, to, to go find our, get, get, go, go dig in our rucksack and find our courage and get back at it, you know? And, um, and this, it was an emotional reaction and Patton slapped this kid and he, and he doubled down on it. He was told to apologize and he wouldn't do it. And they fired him. Eisenhower eventually just fired him, took his army away from him and uh, put him and put him on mothballs. And the, the story is that, um, and this is before D-Day, this is before the invasion where we actually, you know, 1944 in June, we, we actually attack and kick the Nazis out of Europe and, and, and get all the way to, to, uh, to Berlin. The drive to Berlin. This is before that, and Patton is on mothballs, and and uh, and he's just heartbroken, and he can't, and he's just, he's, he's just, he's used up. He's like, I can't. The, the one moment that, that was for me, I can't do it. And guess what he does? He um, he uh, gets get. He is given an army again at the same level, and so his other his his other companions that were under him are now promoted above him, but he gets to to command the third army and attack, um, he gets a second chance, basically. And the idea was that Patton was so successful in his charge across, uh, nor across uh, France into Germany, he was so successful because of this setback, because he was so rearing to go and so heartbroken that he wasn't part of the D-Day invasion. I mean, for D-Day, they, let, they did this, this, this campaign where they said Patton was in charge of an army at Calais, and it was, it was cardboard. Maybe you all know the story. It was inflatables and cardboard. It was a fake army. And they, 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 they signaled to the Germans that the attack was going to come from Calais because their best general was in Calais, commanding something that didn't exist. He commanded a bunch of guys with, with uh, cardboard and spray paint. I mean, he, was, he didn't have a command. But they, but they set him up as this dummy, um, you know, uh, faint, so that they could do their attack at Normandy. And that, that's one reason the Norman invasion was successful, was the Germans were reinforcing ready, ready to, to, to repulse an attack at Calais from Patton. But, but see, Patton has to sit out D-Day, and he's like, ah, oh, this is the moment in history, and I can't. Well, he is the third army guy that drives past the maps. They can't supply with maps fast enough. And the idea was that he's just so raring to go that um, that setback, uh, he's like, I can't make another, I can't lose out this opportunity. Once they give him one, and he really takes it. And so that's why we won, you know, the, the Norman invade, or the Norman push through the hedgerow country after the initial invasion, because Patton came back uh, from, from a failure and needed a win. And so I don't know if that's true. It may be that just if you give Patton tanks, he's going to run them as fast as they'll go. <laughs> but, but that's a neat story that he wanted to recover. And so here's what I'm trying to say in this long illustration. God knew, okay, Patton prayed. He, God, let me, back, let me back in. I want to go do this. I'm, you made me for this, right? Patton prayed, don't let this political setback shut me down. But it did. It did shut him down and it broke his heart. And that was something God knew. And it set him up for this moment when he would actually win by charging across Europe and beating, you know, undoing the failures of, of, uh, of uh, uh, Montgomery and, and, you know, being successful despite the failures of, his, of, of those on his, on his flanks. And, and God knew that he needed the setback to be ready to snap back and attack and, and be that guy that won um, the Norman, uh, the, the Norman uh, uh, race. And so through across Normandy and, and France. And so um, God knows all the things that are going on. So you're in the moment, you're like, God, why are you letting me fail? Well, why, why, aren't, you, why aren't you backing me up? Why, why, why am I in this dungeon? Why did you sell me into slavery or let me be sold into slavery and now I'm in this dungeon? 
like Joseph? And the answer is, stay tuned. God has the whole data set. The point is that God's omniscience is bigger than we think. And God knows what we're going through and he knows what he's going to do with us. And so omniscience is a really helpful thing when you are limited in your knowledge to remember God isn't. And so what he wants for you may be that you get fired and lose your army because he has another opportunity for you to go uh, be the conqueror because, because that's what he's going to do. And so you have to go through this hardship and there's no, well, okay, I won't be heartbroken. I'll just wait. No, you got to go through the heartbreak so that you're primed and you know to, to watch your mouth and not get any more trouble so that you can go, go and attack. All right. So God's omniscience means he has this complete data set. And so what he wants includes all the inputs. God's righteousness, fourth, is another attribute that we want to talk about when we talk about God wanting. God's righteousness is the attribute of perfect moral goodness and rightness. That's a little bit of, a, of an oversimplification, but it's hard to talk about righteousness other than just saying whatever God wants, does, thinks, he always acts in concord with this perfect moral goodness that is his essence of righteousness. The most important concept for understanding what is wrong with our sin and why we can't do anything about it, Jesus had to die for our sins and impute his righteousness to us when we trust in him. That's justification. But God's righteousness, this attribute of perfect moral goodness, bears on the topic of his will. Every desire, fifth, every desire in God is perfectly right and good. Now notice, every desire we have is not based on a complete data set. We don't know what's going to happen if I get X or Y. If, if she'll go out with me, I prayed and prayed and she won't go out with me. Well, you don't know what would have happened if she had gone out with you. I prayed and prayed and uh, we just weren't able to get this business deal done. You don't know where that business deal would have taken you. I prayed and prayed and we still missed the airplane. You didn't know if the airplane was going to crash. And had you been on it, you would have died and not done the thing you were supposed to do next. We don't have a complete data set is the point. So omniscience, righteousness is like it. We're not righteous in our desires, not like God. I mean, sometimes my desires align with his righteousness because primarily they're aligning with his desires and he is righteous. See, we're not righteous in ourselves and that's a difference. So every desire in God is perfectly right and good. So sixth, God's love, another attribute. This means that among other things, he's the ultimate promoter of all that is desirable for himself, God the Father, Son, and Spirit with this love between the, the, the persons of the Godhead, but also for his creation. God is the ultimate lover. And, uh, and if God has this attribute, this character attribute of agape love, then that has to figure into his will as well. And I think it's really close. I think love is directing what he wants. So omniscient, seventh, and righteousness and love, if you take these three attributes together and think about how that impacts what he wants, these guarantee that God's desires are the highest and best and they're beyond anything we could hope or desire or, or imagine. You see what I'm saying? This is why we say God is a better wanter than we are. And this is why we say with the Lord Jesus, nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. I want God to have his way. So remember those nine important words? This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. So let's unpack the will drill with that verse. This. This replies. This is that verse, First uh, Thess 5.18b. This is anything God commands you. Pray without ceasing, rejoice always. If it's a command, it's expressing the desire, the will of the speaker. So this command, whatever it is, is the thing, this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers in 2 Corinthians 6, 14. This is God's will in Christ Jesus for you. Whatever the command is, this is what God wants for you. And remember, he's a better wanter. So the this, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. These are things that are God's will for you. This. The word is was uh, popularly or notoriously abused in the 90s by a recent a former president in the United States. The word is is really important because it isn't saying maybe. It's indicative. This Thing that God is commanding you is absolutely is not maybe not it's settled this one's settled and so this is how it works God gives you a command it is what it is it is best and highest for you because God is the ultimate wanter so what he wants is what you need to want 
That's how it is. You can line up opposed to it and say, no, I don't believe that. But that's the option. You can say, yes, God, it is. Or no, it isn't. I don't believe that it is. You can say, yes, God, this is the good for me. Or no, God, it's not. But you can't change what is true. And so this is, and so th this is a really important connector to your creator. When he tells you to pray without ceasing, he tells you to rejoice in the Lord always, this is settled. It is what it is. This is God's. Th this is not, I, I, I don't feel like loving self-sacrificially. Right. That's not, doesn't say just be you boo and go do it. It says throughout the New Testament, all these awesome commands that you're awesomely empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry off because this is what God wants for you. This is God's will. Now that word philema, will, I believe means desire. When God commands you to pray unceasingly and then you don't do it, we haven't somehow contradicted God's eternal decree because philema, the word will, is not talking about his eternal decree almost ever, if ever. It's talking about what God wants. Remember, God's a personal God. He's a personal being, tri-personal, three persons uh, in one Godhead. And so personally, God wants. And so this is what God wants, is what this mean, This will means. This is God's will, and it is, and you can't do anything about it being God's will, except, except it, respond to it, and adjust yourself accordingly. This is God's will for you. Now, why would I, why do we slow this down like that? I mean, I get it, he's for me. Think about this. The creator of the universe that's holding all things together, the great glorious one who is eternally self-existent, has something he wants for you. He's got you in mind. And that's why he sent Paul. And that's why he told you what he told you in 13 letters from Paul and then, then the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. First Thess 5.18 is just saying this as the, the conclusion of all these commands. We've got the same type of commands in Philippians 4. It's God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Remember, the key to all of these is a focus on Jesus Christ. It's a faith that goes to seed in hope. It's a, it's a, it's a focus and attention that can be called occupation with Christ. And it's the question, who is he? What has he done? What, what, is, what is Jesus to me? What difference does it make that I have him? What has the Bible said about him? And in Christ is our new identity. And so the will of God, the desire God has for us is connected to our identity and our destiny in Jesus Christ. And so just think of think the fact that he sent his son to die for you because he loved you. That God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. That this is a manifestation of the love of God for the world that he sent his only begotten son. That he gave his only begotten son. This is, this is demonstrative of the type of thing God is interested in for you. He wants the highest and best. He gave you his best and that's Christmas. That you know he gave his son. A child has been born to us. A son has been given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders. All right, my conclusion. I think it's seven points of conclusion. We've had seven commands, three promises, nine words, seven points of the rationale, and now I think it's seven points of conclusion. First, we must learn to want what God wants. We have to learn to suspend our limited perspective and its deliverances in our feelings enough to hear God say what he wants, and we need to learn to want that. I want to rejoice in the Lord always. I want to be that person. I want to let my gentleness be made known to all men. See, a lot of the, the problem with our obedience is we don't want what he's saying, but, but you need to learn to want what he wants. Second, this applies to ourselves and to others. We want what God wants for us. We want what God wants for other people. That's what I mean by it applies to ourselves and to others. We must learn to want what God wants, and that means for ourselves and for others. And third, getting noisy over here um i i do not teach at eight in the morning ever but it's eight in the it started at eight o'clock here when i so um god's good and he answered my prayers he made me able all right the first step in making this switch from uh what i want to to wanting what god wants is faith it's saying um i believe god is omniscient i believe he's righteous i believe he's loving right and i'm going to trust him to that his commands are the best thing for me. 
So God tells you forth who he is and what he wants. You have to choose to believe him. God tells you who he is and what he wants. You have to choose to believe him. And that's the first step to doing what he's commanding you. So that's be doers of the word. That's, that's practice these things that you see in Paul. And it starts with faith. Fifth, if God is omniscient, righteous, and loving, then his preferences are the optimum for us. What he wants is the very best because he's maxed out all the categories. So just his love guarantees that he's going to utilize his omniscience and correspond it with his righteousness to, to seek the highest and best for you. It's kind of like that old joke I've told you recently, probably not from the pulpit, but some of you, <clears throat> about the, the rich man that prayed and prayed and prayed uh, that God would let him take it with him. And he, he took all of his wealth uh, right before he died. He had all his wealth. Uh, turned you know from cash into gold. He bought gold, had all the gold melted down, and got it got it into one big old heavy brick. <clears throat> and uh, and he prayed and prayed, Lord, let this come with me. And God did a miracle in this case. And when he uh, appeared, uh, absent from the body, uh, in the presence of God, he appeared with his gold brick, all the wealth that he had amassed, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in this heavy, heavy chunk of gold. And, uh, you know, talking a 150-pound block of gold. You can do the math on that with today's prices at about $1,800 an ounce. Anyway, so so he has this massive gold thing, and he brings it, and he's absent the body, and he's, how's he carrying the gold? That That's part of the joke. But, but he, he sees the Lord, and the Lord's like, what are you doing with that pavement? We don't need that. We've got plenty of pavement. See, we we don't know. We don't know. We just know a little bit. So what we have to do is suspend our limited petty you know ignorance and and what it delivers in our feelings and ask god what does he want and he tells you very clearly like he says rejoice in the lord so fix your attention on him and then you'll have what you want in your relationships you have what god wants you to have because now my relationships are not the basis for my self-esteem or my my joy or my happiness in life my relationships are a ministry of god channeling his grace through me to others and that's a totally different way of looking at life. You're no longer a vampire sucking off people, trying to get satisfaction for your life out of them. Now you're a conduit of God's blessing to them because you're occupied with the only one who will really satisfy you. You're feasting, as it were, on your Savior instead of the souls of others and their resources. Sixth, if God wants to max you out because his desire, I'm sorry, God does want to max you out because his desires on your behalf are the ultimate in righteousness and love. That's another way of saying that. God wants to max you out because he's the ultimate lover. And so whatever he wants for you is the very best. And so seventh, therefore, when God gives you a command, your obedience is the greatest possible choice that you can make for your own good. That is the will drill. That's the point, is that giving God what he wants in worship to him for his sake ends up being the greatest self-seeking, the self-promoting thing you can do. Now, we don't do it in a, from a motivation of self-glorification, self-promotion, but that's the way the relationship with God turns. He blesses you with resources for you to bless him with so that he takes those and blesses you and then you bless him and so then he blesses you. And that's how it works. That's the relationship you're in. It's not the prosperity gospel. It's not the health and wealth gospel at all. It is the relationship with God as opposed to a religion. Religion says give so that you can get. Relationship with God says give because you have received and you love him and give in that motivation. And you take the same attitude as the Lord Jesus in John 17, 1 through 5. My prayer is that you can orient to the will of God, his desire for you, that it's the best. Find it, it written very clearly in his commands. And then go for it. Like Understand that the command to let your gentleness be known, the command not to worry, the command to make your request known. These things are the highest and the best. And if you'll do them, the outcomes are higher and better than you can ever imagine. And they start with the peace of God and the coming of our Savior with his judgment. Our Father, we thank you for these commands and the promises and the rationale that if we'll trust you, then we'll obey you because we believe that you have the very highest and best for us. We believe this, Father. We trust you with our lives, with our future, 
with everything you're going to do with us, Father. We know we're here on earth to serve you, to grow uh, in, in the ability to do that, and then to do it well. And we're here uh, for just a short time with an eternal consequence in our <clears throat> in our rewards and higher responsibilities. Father, train us and groom us for ruling under your Son in the coming kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, for those of you, uh, just one quick announcement I meant to bring earlier. For those of you that won't be with us for second hour, I wanted to uh, to say we're having a Christmas, I'm sorry, a New Year's Eve service. We, I wasn't able to be with you for Christmas. So we are going to do a special New Year's Eve service, regular time, uh, 7 o'clock. And uh, we, it will include a communion at the conclusion. We'll enter the new year. We'll ring in the new year. Um, in anticipation of God's grace to us, regardless of whatever horrible circumstances are, are headed down the pike, politically, economically, socially, we'll, uh, we'll keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ coming into 2021. That's, um, that's this Thursday, the 31st at 7 p.m. Uh, in addition to what we're doing Wednesday, we'll meet Wednesday also for prayer at 6 and uh, Bible study at 7. We'll continue to discuss that will be done, what God's doing with us in prayer. So please join us and uh, mark your calendar for the 31st um, at, uh, at 7 p.m.